to Matthew chapter 9. As we turn on the lights, we're going to uh, believe God that the sun's going to come out again. How many are going to believe God for the sun to come out? I mean, I don't know what happened in 24 hours, but uh, the devil is a liar. I know God is good. By faith, spring is coming back this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in a sermon series, chapter by chapter, in the book of Matthew. Today in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to learn about asking the Lord of the harvest for workers. So let's just jump right into it. If you got our app, you can download it, at, or if you don't, get it at Metro Praise International or open it up because the notes are online as well at the website and the app. Uh, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. That's the town of Capernaum. He had moved from Nazareth. Now he's in Capernaum. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man laying on a mat. When Jesus saw their face, somebody say, Jesus saw their faith. Come on, you guys can do it. Say, Jesus saw their faith. Thank you. Jesus can see faith. Okay, remember that. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God who had given such authority to man. What you see right here is the first indication, what I like to call a peekaboo. Everybody go peekaboo. What I like to show you here is a little peekaboo of Jesus' divinity. Jesus is now going to start showing you that he's more than just a man, that he's the God man, that he has existed before his birth. In other words, he's going to show you he's your God. How does he do it in this situation? Well, these friends bring their crippled buddy to Jesus to be healed. And when Jesus sees their faith, he knows he's going to do a miracle. But before he does the miracle, he wants this crippled person to know, more importantly, man, your sins are forgiven. That right there sets all the Jewish people off because who can forgive sins but God? This is once again why we have a problem with the Roman Catholic Church because they put the Pope in their priesthood in a place where only God can be. You don't need to go into a dark closet to confess your naughty secrets to Father Tom. You need to go on your knees and talk to God in Jesus' name. That's the only way you receive forgiveness. And these good Jews knew that. Even though a priest or a pastor in their time could say, God has forgiven you if you've done X, Y, and Z, nobody could just step on the scene and be like, you're forgiven. God forgives you. Like the man hasn't even confessed sin. The man hasn't done a sacrifice. He hasn't done anything that he's supposed to do where a priest can at least say, I feel you're forgiven. Like you've done the right things. You know, somebody comes to me in counseling and says, Pastor, I've done X, Y, and Z, and now I've repented of my sins. You know, I still feel bad about it. What's the deal? I can be like, bro, you're forgiven. You know, God loves you. But I don't just walk up to random people and be like, hey, man, you're forgiven of your sins. Do you understand that the Jewish people are now thrown off by this? They accuse Jesus of blaspheming. Blasphemy wasn't just taking the name of the Lord in vain, as simple as we think about it from the Ten Commandments. Blasphemy is also doing things that only God can do or pretending to do things that only God can do. Because truly, if you're not God and you're saying your sins are forgiven, you're just playing make-believe. 
like I think the Roman Catholic Church is doing. That's why we love Roman Catholics. Come to Jesus and be forgiven of your sins and stop playing make-believe with people who just pronounce your forgiveness. You have to repent to God, not to man. But notice this. Jesus now knows their thoughts. And right here, somebody might say, well, this is Superman Jesus. See, Jesus, he was like a better kind of human than we could ever be because he was born perfect. That is not true. Jesus is the reset of humanity just as Adam was and Adam came perfect. Jesus came perfect. And that's why I always ask another religion like Islam, they don't believe Jesus is the son of God, but they believe he's born of a virgin. I say, he's a prophet, just a prophet. And I say, why was Jesus even in your Quran said to be born of a virgin? What's the purpose of that? You see, you have to read the Christian scriptures to understand why Jesus would need to be born of a virgin. Because he would not inherit the sinful nature that had been passed down since Adam and Eve sinned. Why do I say all of that? Because how does he know their thoughts? Because he's tapping into his divine side or because he's relying on the Holy Spirit being given a gift of knowledge? See, the Holy Spirit came on him at his baptism. God is always in in, in union with the Holy Spirit. But why does Jesus need the Holy Spirit to come on him? Because as a man, he had to be anointed just like us. That's why when he goes into the temple, uh, the synagogue, he picks up uh, the scrolls and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. If Jesus is God, why does he need to be anointed in other words? Hello? Are you guys listening? If Jesus is God, why does he need to be anointed? Does anybody here have some money to loan Bill Gates? Does Bill Gates need a loan from anybody here? No, because he already has it. Why does Jesus need to be anointed? Why does the Holy Spirit come upon him? Why does he say things like, I don't know when I'm coming back. Only my father knows. I thought God knows everything. Why does Jesus get tired? I thought God never gets tired. Why does Jesus even die? I thought God can never die. Because God the Son, eternal, came in the flesh to live like a man. He will die physically like a man. But when you die, your spirit doesn't die, it lives on. The God nature was always living. He is veiling, he is He is lessening his God abilities, dialing it down all the way to where human power would be. And then human power relied upon the Holy Spirit's power is a dependent relationship. Jesus is living in a dependent relationship upon the Holy Spirit. Do you understand this? A couple of you. This is important to understand about who Jesus is. So when it says he knows their thoughts... That's not Jesus tapping into the divine side. Jesus would know everybody's thoughts. If you've ever seen Superman, Jesus could hear every, uh, Superman could hear everybody's thoughts. Or if you've ever seen like, you know, Evan Almighty, his email gets everybody's prayer. Jesus would have been in a state of all-knowing at any given time. Why is it significant to know now he's knowing this person's particular thoughts? Holy Spirit gives them the gift of knowledge. The gift of knowledge is now given to Christians by the Holy Spirit. Don't go see a psychic and listen to what evil spirits know about your business. Come to church and let the Holy Spirit use godly people to help you with your business. You understand? Because I used to live in New Orleans where they had the tarot card readers set out every day in the French Quarter. A lot of voodoo, a lot of synchronism, which would mean they would mix Christianity with their voodooism. That's weird to watch. That's a whole other story of some of the things that I've seen. You think you're talking to Christians, but then they start doing voodoo practices. 
When Jesus hears the thoughts, it's not from an evil spirit, it's from the Holy Spirit. And he says, your thoughts are evil. And then he challenges them. And he says, what is greater to say to this man right now? Get up from your mat and walk or your sins are forgiven. But to show you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, get up and walk. So if the man got up and walked, don't you think his sins were forgiven? Amen. Go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Oftentimes when we hear Jesus call himself the Son of Man, we think that's a lesser title than the title Son of God. Son of Man and Son of God both speak to Jesus' divinity. Can I say that again? Jesus being called Son of Man speaks to him being God in the flesh. Jesus being called Son of God also speaks to Jesus being God in the flesh. There are two divine titles. Sometimes people say that the Son of Man just refers to him becoming a man, and that doesn't refer to his divinity. No, you're missing it. When Jesus became a man, he was glorified as a man to be the God-man. Do you understand that? There are not two separate components of Jesus' nature that don't intermingle in divinity. The humanity of Jesus, it's touched by the divinity of Jesus. Now, how that hypostasis happens, that's a big Greek word for how these natures exist, yet they still are individual, that is a mystery. That's as far as I can go according to the scripture. But God In man is the God-man. Listen to what I mean by that. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. The Daniel of the lion's dens wrote a prophecy about Jesus. He said, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. This is not somebody born of a person that's been living on earth, hanging out, going, that's a son of man. No, no, look where this person's coming from. They're coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Keep going. Verse 14, thank you. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language did what? Worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be what? Destroyed. Now it says right here, that son of man did not look like just a man like Adam. He's a glorified man a God-like man, and that God-like man comes to the Ancient of Days and is given this same exact power, authority that the Ancient of Days has and is now worshipped in the same exact way that the Ancient of Days is worshipped. Now go to Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. Or excuse me, Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, uh, 15. Just go to the next verse over. Look at what Daniel responds to in his vision when he sees this in Daniel chapter 7, verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in my spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind did what? Amen. I want you to look at verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in my spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind did what? Disturbed me. Why do you think that disturbed Daniel's mind? What disturbed him about that, class? 
A man was being worshipped. In the Bible, you were only to worship God and God alone. Now Daniel is having a vision that there is a person that looks just like a man, but he has all the attributes of the Ancient of Days like the Ancient of Days, and now he's getting worshipped exactly like the Ancient of Days. How can somebody tell me that the Bible doesn't talk about the Trinity before the, uh, before the incarnation of Jesus? This is the Old Testament showing us the triune nature of God. But why is Jesus here called the Son of Man? Because he will come in the flesh, he will resurrect, and when he goes to heaven, this is exactly what happens. This is why at the end of Matthew, go to Matthew chapter 28, we're reading the book of Matthew verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but how many know it's good to go to the end every now and then? You guys ever start a book like that, read the end? Some people cheat like that, but it's okay. It's not cheating. We're just learning here. Go to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. We'll be, you know, talking about Easter and all that next week, his death, burial, and resurrection. Look at verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, all what? Authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what did Daniel see Thousands of years before Jesus, or a thousand plus years before Jesus, he saw a vision of what the resurrected Jesus would be like. You all get that? So when, go back to the notes now, please. When Jesus said, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, was he blaspheming? No, he was acting in the authority his Father had given him. And it was soon to be enacted upon the whole planet after his resurrection. Now, if he never would have came down and died on the cross for our sins, would he still have all authority? Absolutely. But guess what? Man would never receive his forgiveness. God's forgiveness only worked by animals because the reality Jesus was coming. So think of like how my shadow can precede me as I walk. So you have my shadow right here on the floor. My shadow precedes me as I walk. The law was the shadow of Jesus coming to earth. The law said sacrifice animals. The law said have a temple. The law said do all of these things. But where is the reality of the shadow? It's Jesus. So if Jesus never would have come, the shadow never would have forgave. The law never would have saved. The, the sacrifice of animals never would have washed us clean. The only reason why a temple worked for them at that time, the only reason why sacrifice worked is because Jesus was coming to be the temple of God. That's why he said, destroy this temple in three days and rise it up. And they, they thought he was talking seditiously against the, against the earthly temple. He said, no, I'm talking about my body. And because Jesus' human body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit in resurrection, now all of our bodies become temples of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus never would have reset the human race by becoming a man, we would be stuck with bodies fit for destruction forever in hell. That's why we're to be born again spiritually to align ourselves with Christ and then wait for the resurrection to be physically like Christ. The physical resurrection of Jesus guarantees our physical resurrection. And remember, you were not meant to be disembodied in heaven forever. Heaven and you being disembodied there is a temporary fix. Until Jesus comes with his kingdom, your resurrected body is given to you, and you rule and reign with him forever. 
The only reason now we go to that place called heaven is because we messed up here on earth. Men was always meant to live on the earth. That's why we were put on the earth, Adam and Eve. And that's why we're to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So don't be deceived by Jehovah Witnesses that say you won't go to heaven, you're only going to reign on earth. No, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But we're not going to stay there. We're going to come back and rule and reign with Christ. So he shows he has the authority. And Isaiah 43, 25 says only God can forgive sins. And so he tells that man to get up and walk, and there's a great miracle that takes place. A few things that we can take from this is, number one, our faith can impact other people's lives. The Bible says these people had so much faith, they brought the sick person to Jesus. We should see ourselves in the story as being those who bring people to Jesus and help them receive their miracle. It should be our desire to bring people to Jesus and set them up for the greatest opportunity. And if you go up to the top of the notes, the Bible says there that the paralyzed man was lying on a mat, but in another gospel, it says there was too many people around that they had to tear open a roof, a hole in the roof to lower him down. See, they were tenacious. See, some of y'all get turned off because your friends don't want to come to church one time and you give up. Give up. You need to tear off some roofs and bring them down. You need to not give up. Now, if they don't want it, you have to walk away at some point. But how tenacious are you in your faith to see someone come to Christ? Amen. Let's continue on. Matthew chapter 9, moving now to verse 9. Here we see about Matthew becoming a disciple, the one writing the book of Matthew. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said to him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and, but go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The quote there is from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Remember in our previous series, we learned about the prophets. Isn't it awesome that Jesus preaches from the prophets? So this Old Testament is still reliable and usable. The Bible says all scripture is inspired by God. We just don't apply the same laws in the same way, but we still have the same God with the moral laws in the Old and New Testament. It's not like God said, hey, lying's okay in the New Testament. Do you all get that? It's just we don't have to kill animals. We don't have to keep the dietary law. Those things are fulfilled in Christ. But at the end of the Old Testament, towards the end of God's literal frustration with the Jewish people, he says, guys, I am sick of your sacrifices. I'm tired of you coming here and always killing all these animals, but you're never changing. I want you to desire mercy more than you desire here giving all your sacrifices. And you can see how applicable it was many hundreds of years later because now God is in the flesh and he's looking at these guys going, really? This is all you have to complain about is that I'm reaching out to sinners. You are so upset with me about doing that that you want to now question whether we should be caring about tax collectors, caring about sinners. We, we should question these things. Of course I love them. And so the idea is here, Jesus loves us enough to come and be with us and eat with us but he loves us too much to keep us the way we are. So here's the deal. Everybody get it. I'll come eat at your house. I don't care what kind of a sinner you are. I'll come to your house. Amen. 
I'll come to your cousin Faco's house. I'll come to the neighborhood barbecue. I'll be there. I'll be, I'll be at cousin Vinny's house. Hey, hey you want to go to the house? Yeah, I'll be there. But here's the deal. I'm going to tell you all about the kingdom of God. I'm going to preach to you about Jesus. So if you don't want me to talk about Jesus at your barbecue, don't bring me there. But I will come there, and I will help you see the kingdom of God because I'm never going to shut it off. And that's what Jesus was doing. Tax collectors were people who worked on behalf of the Roman government to take taxes from the people they were oppressing. To be a Jewish tax collector meant you worked with the oppressors of Rome to collect the taxes from your own people. And then guess what they did? They would charge them extra, more than what Rome required, and make their living off pimping their own people. And so, yes... Was there reason to be upset with these oppressors and people being unfair? But Christ still loved them. So for all y'all here that don't like Trump people, this would be like you sitting down with a guy wearing a MAGA hat today and telling him about Jesus. Because don't people that wear MAGA hats need to hear about Jesus? And all my Trump people, this would be like you sitting down with the Bernie Sanders person a socialist or whatever, or a Cortez, and you sitting down with them because don't they deserve Jesus? And this would be the same about different cultures, different races, as people say, though there's only one race, the human race, but I'll use that word so people can understand. We should sit down with each other, share meals, and give Jesus to each other. The best thing an African-American can do right now is lead a white person to the Lord and help bring racial reconciliation. To show that we all need Jesus. The best thing that a Latino can do is win a, a gringo to the Lord and vice versa. We can show our love for each other by crossing cultural barriers and winning each other to the Lord. Let's go do it. Amen. Does anybody know? Does anybody know a gringo white pastor with the predominantly minority congregation? Does anybody know anybody like that? Oh. Is that me? Look around for all the white people in here. We're the minority. How does it feel, white person, to be the minority? <laughs> this is what it's like. Amen. Now you guys treat me nice. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. This is family. Because when I, by God's grace, started his church here, not my church, his church here, it was all about reaching everybody. And hey, if, if my kind of people don't want to come, that's fine because my kind of people aren't the ones that have the color of skin and the historical background I have. My kind of people are who serve this God right here. That's why in a little bit when Mary and Jesus' brothers come to try to get him away from ministry, spend more time at home, Jesus is going to say, who's my mother, brother, and sister? It's those who do the will of God. Amen. And so we learn that Matthew was called here. Let's go keep on Matthew, please. He was called here. And he was considered a sinner, and yet God did a great deal in his life. And then look at what it says here, because this is very key to understanding discipleship. The Bible says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. No one gets saved in the kingdom of God unless they become humble and admit they are a sinner. So when I talk to people on the streets and I say, hey, do you have time to talk about Jesus? And they say, no, I'm good, I'm okay. No, you're not. You're not okay without Jesus. The very fact you're saying you're okay means Jesus can't heal you and save you. Jesus only saves sinners. He doesn't save good people. He doesn't save people who have tried to do better in life because then you would have something to offer God. But the Bible simply says we come with nothing but filthy rags, and yet he loves us and he cares, cares for us. So remind us, 
to people when you talk to them. If they say, oh, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, ask them to take the good person test. How many know what the good person test is? Okay, here it is. Have you ever told a lie? Yes. What do we call people who tell lies? Liars. Have you ever taken something, no matter how small it is, it doesn't belong to you? Yes. What do we call those people? Thieves. We call them thieves. Have you ever taken the name of the Lord in vain? What do we call those people? Blasphemers. Have you ever disobeyed your parents? What do we call those people? Rebellion, rebellious. Have you ever lusted? Have you ever lusted? Yes. What do we call those people? You know, perverted or, or, you know, or lusters. Have you ever coveted, been jealous of what somebody else has? Yeah. What do we call those people? Jelly, you know, haters, all of that. How are you doing on the good person test? Those are just some of the Ten Commandments. Now let's pull out a calculator and see how many of those do you think you do or break on average per day. So let's say on average you tell maybe one lie or you covet one time or as a child you disobey your parents or you slip up and take the name of the Lord in vain. Let's say five times a day you break one of God's commandments. There's 365 days in a year. That's 1,825 violations of God's commands. How righteous are you now? Right? How many sins did Adam and Eve commit to get kicked out of the garden and bring hell on earth? One. And what did they do? Rape children and sell crack? No, they disobeyed. So your disobedience is the same as theirs. You've done it 1,825 times. How long are you going to live from being a young adult that knows right and wrong to the time you die? Let's say you're going to live from 13 to, to 80. That's going to be what, 63 years? 13 minus 80. 67. 60, okay, so let's take 1,825 minus 67 years. That's how many sins, 122,275 you're showing up to judgment day with. You ready for that good person? I'm good. I wish we could see what you look like spiritually because you're a mess spiritually. Amen? Come on, somebody. So I love this, though. Why do I love this? Because I can't do anything to earn this. I just have to admit I'm sick and I need this. Listen to his illustration. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So coming to Jesus is simply just admitting you're sick. It's not trying to be more religious. Now, will we do good works after becoming a Christian? Absolutely, but we're not saved by them. My child can be born and learn to do good works, but they're never born by doing the good works. Do you understand? What came first? Their good works or being born? Okay, what comes first? You being a Christian or doing good works? Becoming a Christian, then you do good works. And it doesn't matter how many you do after that, you could have never made yourself new by doing that. You have to be born first, amen? And so be born spiritually, the Bible says. Let's go to the quick, uh, quickly through fasting. Then Jesus' disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the disciples fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom uh, mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away the garment, pull from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. Everybody go, oh, you don't want to waste wine. Come on, somebody. It's okay to laugh in church every now and then, amen. Now they pour, no, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Both are preserved. What is Jesus doing here? And if you have children in the back, would you please go do that so our children's workers will still like me at the end of the day, at the end of service? We have to do that at 1045. You can come back in. We'll keep the party going. 
Let's go back to the fasting portion, please. John's disciples. Somebody say John's disciples. John's disciples are the good guys, man. These are the ones who were holding it down when all the other Jewish culture was turning against the things of God. John came before Jesus, though he was a cousin of Jesus, close in age. He came before him and started this ministry. And John is actually the one who baptized Jesus. And so he's teaching and he's raising up disciples. These are the good guys. And what happens here is these guys are now curious because they're watching Jesus raise up his disciples, but there's a difference. See, John's disciples are fasting all the time, and they're doing a lot more of the religious things of the Jewish people, even though they have the right heart. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, like, I get we're not supposed to do the bad things the hypocritical Jewish people are doing, but why is it we don't see you doing the good things like fasting? How many know fasting is good? You don't like it so much while you're doing it. You fast for breakfast. You're, like, ready to eat twice as much for lunch. This is true, right? Fasting is hard, but it's good. How many know it's spiritual? It's in the Bible. They fasted when Jonah preached to Nineveh. They fasted during the Day of Atonement once a year for their sins. Okay, Daniel did a fast when he was in Babylon to hear from God. And so these are good things to do, fast. But John's disciples noticed Jesus' disciples are eating all the time. They're hanging out. Like, what's up, Jesus? Why is it so much of a party with you guys? But we're the one, you know, fasting all the time. And now Jesus says this really important heavy revy you got to get because you have to understand while Jesus is coming into time, he is now changing covenants. And think about it in a relay race. One person gets it, and then the other one hands it off, right? And so we're watching the baton from the old to the new. And as the baton is changing over from the old to the new covenant, so the apostles and the, new, the Christian church can start going forward, he's letting them know this thing about fasting was really all about a disconnection that people had with God. And now Jesus is saying, they don't need to fast. I'm right here. He literally says that by telling them, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? It's like, God, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Peter cries out, and Jesus is like, hey, I'm right here, Peter. You don't have to pray very hard, very long. You don't have to go fast. Where are you? Where, you know, tearing your shirt, putting on ashes over your head like they used to do. And Jesus is like, Peter, Peter, right here, buddy. We don't have to do it. They're like fasting. Oh, I want to hear from God. I need a miracle. And then Jesus is like, hello, I'm right here. Where, where's the person that needs the miracle? Let's go. But notice what he says. He goes, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Here's what's controversial between Christians. Does that mean that when he's taken from them at the resurrection, the New Testament church, like us, will fast until his second coming? That's one option. Or does it mean that when he's taken from, from them at the crucifixion for three days during the burial, they'll mourn and fast and feel away from God. But then when he comes to them, he'll forever be with them. And so it goes back to the party. Which one do you think I am? One, that means we fast until the second coming. Raise your hand if you think that's what I believe. Oh, y'all are pretty smart in this place. <laughs> Did I like make the second one look really good or something? How many think I believe in the second one? 
that we don't have to fast to get close to him because now he's with us. Can I show you the reality of that? Go back to Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. We'll be closing here today, continuing the rest of Matthew 9 after Easter, okay? So come next week with your friends and family. We'll have an Easter service, talk about his death, burial, and resurrection, and then we'll go back to Matthew 9. I don't want to keep you too long today. But look at Matthew chapter 28. We went through this before, you know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He wants us to go make disciples. Now watch and baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity. Now look at verse 20, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And let's read the last part together. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So is the bridegroom with you? He is. So do you have to fast to get closer to him? No, you can if you want to for self-discipline or to consecrate yourself in time to make that opportunity for God to speak more to you. But there is nothing now you can do religiously to bring Christ closer to you than he is already. We did before the book of Matthew a sermon series on Ephesians. The entire revelation of Ephesians said over 20 times, 20 times is you are in Christ. Christ is in you. You are in him. We, we titled the sermon series in him because it said it so much. We're in Christ Jesus. We're in him. And so the idea is as we go back to the notes, it's time for some new wine, baby. And the new wine is your spirit, you are the new wineskin. You don't have to go out begging God to do something new in your life. God is doing it right now by default if you're a Christian. Everything is going from glory to glory. And so it says here, you don't take new wine and put it into old wineskins. Why is that? Because when wine ferments and the gases would, would, would cause uh, the, the, uh, the grape juice to turn to alcohol, that fermenting process through the gas would cause the wineskins to expand. And if they had already expanded and you put new wine in there to expand again, it would break the wineskin. Just like if you had an older shirt and you put new cloth that hasn't been pre-shunk on the shirt as a patch, as that new patch starts to stretch, it's going to ruin the old shirt. Does everybody get the parable here or the understanding? How many get it? Okay, let's be honest. Do you get it? Yes or no? Okay, I'm looking around. Great. So where's the new wineskin? Point to it. Right here. And what is the new wine? The Holy Spirit of God. Adam in the band, would you come please? If today you feel old and wore out, God wants to make you new in him. And today, if you're saying to yourself, well, I've tried to mix the old with the new and it's not working, that's exactly what Jesus said won't work. You're either going to remain old, busted and disgusted as your old self, or you're going to become new today in Christ. And those of us who have already been made new, how many of you want some new wine on the inside of you? I want the Holy Spirit to put all that he has for me on the inside of me and ferment me, make me a beautiful taste to the Father. I want the Father to see me on Judgment Day and be like, oh, 1977 Chardonnay? Oh, so good. Jesus, you're so good at this. I was born in 77. Y'all get it? Like, but born again, oh, I should say like this, you know, this 1995 Chardonnay. 
This is so good, Jesus. You make it so good. I want to be a well-aged wine to the taste of the Father. I want the Father to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to come to the Father without a life that has been aged and matured in the things of God. The illustration is clear, but it can be missed by us trying to hold on to old and new things. Let's ask Christ to make us new. Amen. Before we go, altar workers, would you come, please? Father, we thank you for today. What a great opportunity to be reminded of newness as we see new children coming into this world and to experience life for the first time. We pray now for us, old timers and those who have been around for a while, that we will be changed from the old to the new. That we won't hold on to our bad habits. We won't hold on to our stinking thinking and our old way of doing things. But that, Jesus, you'll fill us with your new wine. As we get ready to close out, would you stand up with me, please, and say, Jesus, make me new. And if you're already a Christian, say, now fill me with the new wine. If you're not a Christian, just start there. Make me new, Jesus. Forgive me of my sins. Take out the old. Put in the new. I believe you're the Lord of my life. You died on the cross for me. Forgive me of sins. But those of us who have already been born again, come on, ask the new wine of God to come. The Holy Spirit, make you new. Make your thinking new. Make your family new. There is new wine today. There is new living today. There are new habits to do today. There's a new family to go home to today. Come on, let go of the old. and Let the new come. A few moments, we'll dismiss the first service and the second service will start coming in. Those who came with their families, feel, feel free to take pictures as you go today. But a few moments right now can change your life. If you need prayer, come on up. We'll dismiss right after we pray for a, a little bit here, but come on, if you need it now to come to Christ, or if you need help getting rid of the old and coming to the new, as you're at your seats, though, let's pray. Come on, let's all be asking God for new wine today. Thank you, man. Let's close out with singing before we go today. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, bless those who are coming today for prayer, God. May we all be filled with your new wine. New wine skins made for new wine, Lord. Forgive us, God, if we've held on to the old too much. Change our lives, God. Every day is new, God. Every day is new, so why not be new with you, Lord? I pray everyone will experience a new life. Come on, some of you should be up here. God can change your old habits into new habits. God can change old ways into new ways. A few moments before we go can change your life. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. As we get ready to dismiss first service, Lord, I pray that you'll bless us today. Bless the families that came. May we live as new wineskins filled with new wine. May we see you do great things in and through us and bring us back safely for Easter with our friends and family to celebrate what made this possible. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Can we give it up for Jesus one more time, first service?
God bless you. We'll see you guys at Life Groups. You are dismissed. Second service folks can start coming in.